Welcome to Screen Therapy. I'm your host, Jason Schurz. In October of 2018, I found myself in the hospital, sitting across from a psychiatrist who was telling me I had bipolar. I was sent home with a bunch of medication and laid on the couch for a week. I had my iTunes library on shuffle, trying to shake the hornet's nest from my head. Ever since I was a kid, I've been using loud music as a form of therapy. Punk rock and mental health have always been connected. This podcast looks at that connection through the lens of different guests. This is Screen Therapy. Choosing a type of therapy can be a crapshoot, and sometimes even re-traumatizing. Somatics, hypno, cognitive, humanistic, family systems, and the list goes on. For Violet Mayuba of California punk band Destroy Boys, it was eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing, otherwise known as EMDR, that stuck with her and allowed her to address her trauma. Using bilateral movements, EMDR creates an environment where traumatic thoughts can be replaced with new thoughts and beliefs to reduce guilt and shame. Violet says while her EMDR therapy is a work in progress, she has been able to lessen the impact of external triggers. It's not for everyone, but EMDR is like any kind of therapy. You have to seek it out yourself, trust the process, and keep coming back. And what's more punk rock than self-advocacy? My name is Violet Mayuba. I play guitar in a band called Destroy Boys, and I've been in therapy as long as I can kind of remember, just regular talk therapy, but I have since then pivoted to EMDR therapy and was doing a little bit of hypnotherapy a little bit, but now I mostly just do talk at EMDR. EMDR therapy is something a lot of people talk about. I know some folks that have done it. I know it's really hard to say, first of all, but (laughs) I'm wondering uh, what it's all about. Yeah. Eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy. So it's great. I was really confused by it when I started, which was about five years ago now. And I always felt like I was doing it wrong because basically all you do is you follow something to track your eyes on and then kind of talk about the traumatic memory with your person that you're doing it with and see where your brain takes you. My brain would always take me to really random places that didn't really feel like it was related to the trauma, which I now know is just the brain doing its thing. Um, But I, I always felt like I was doing it wrong. And my therapist was really good about reassuring me that there is no wrong way to do it. Yeah, I had the same experience with somatics, which is similar. It's, it's more in the body. And yeah, things would come up that were completely unrelated to the 
trauma that I experienced when I was a kid, but it was also body movement. So like having like little twitches and stuff. Yeah. The MDR that I did brought up a lot of painful stuff. It was probably the first time that, you know, that stuff had really come up from my childhood. When you went into it, what were you expecting from it? Were you expecting it to be this sort of grand realization of what happened or what was your thoughts going in? It was really interesting. So I've done EMDR about a couple different things. I think I kind of fall into the same category as a lot of people where I don't have just like one instance of trauma. I have a lot of different things that range, which makes it a little bit more difficult to treat going backwards. I remember I had all kinds of conceptions of what it might be or what it might do. Yeah, I remember thinking that I was going to have just like this big explosion of feelings and releasing the top of a pressure cooker type situation. But I've kind of realized that it's a lot more gradual as the treatment goes on, kind of like slowly just melting away all these layers around things that have happened for me. But it's really interesting how it somatically sticks with you. I think that's a great point. When I was 18, I was a smoker and... When I was doing MDR about this particular event, I like started tasting like ash in my mouth. I had some pretty bad experiences with a guy around 2018 to 2020. And I find it necessary to do MDR to heal from that just for myself and also for my current relationship with my very nice new boyfriend. Or he's not very new now. We've been dating for almost three years. But yeah, I've been doing EMDR for that, and it's been a really long process. I started seeing my therapist when I was in the midst of the trauma kind of going down. So backpedaling on that with her has been really, it's been really hard. I'm not going to lie and say that it's easy. It's, it's really, really tough, and I think a lot of people that have experienced that will relate to that. How does it work logistically? Because it's a bit of a weird process. Yeah, it's definitely weird. So I I do it remotely now. And we have this program called bilaterals, (laughs) where there's literally just kind of a program of a ball moving around the monitor. And I just follow that with my eyes. After we've made a target for the session, a target would be something like, okay, I want to work on reducing my physical reaction to this specific memory, like a feeling of disgust or a feeling of anger or a feeling of sadness or fear. It's like, how am I going to reduce that? How intense is it currently? And then I do the bilaterals. My therapist will say, okay, what came up for you? And I'll be like, oh, you know, I was thinking about what I was going to have for lunch today. Or I was thinking about how this reminded me of another time that he did that or blah, blah, blah. And she'll be like, okay, we'll just think about that specifically. And we'll kind of go down this path of where the memory wants to take you. And then when we get to a little bit of a wall, she'll be like, well, what does that say about you? And how do you want to feel about you specifically? Because a lot of trauma instills these things about you, like I'm not worthy of love. I deserved what happened to me. I caused it myself. Like that. that's something that happens to me a lot. And kind of reframing that through the process is really good. I don't really understand the science behind it. I know that bilateral eye movements trigger something in the brain that makes it work. And there's a little bit of somaticism in there. Like there's some tapping that we do when we're affirming. The new thought that I want to think about myself, we do a lot of replacement where it's like, I think that I don't deserve love. And the the thing I want to think about myself is I do. Um, And then we'll kind of tap on my shoulders or on my knees along to thinking that thought about myself. 
I don't really understand how the science works, <laughs> but it totally works. Going to therapy is a really scary thing for a lot of people. Going mm-hmm. to a therapy like EMDR, which you know has that kind of weird element to it, can be even scarier. Do you remember what you felt like going into it? Yeah, therapy is really intimidating. I find that as I see the results of EMDR, sometimes those trauma responses can be really hard and it makes it hard for me to want to go back. But me just individually, I'm solution focused overall to trauma. It's like a big, long, fat process overall. But I'm always really, really focused on improving myself in the way that I live my life. So that's kind of what motivates me to go and go back. When I started, I knew I was in need of therapy, but I was just scared of the I was 17 and 18. I didn't really know how to like go. I'm like, do you just call them? You know, (laughs) and you do. (laughs) I was scared of that part of the process. And then going into it, I wasn't originally fearful, but then getting to the EMDR part being like, oh, I'm doing it wrong. That was really hard for me. So just working with my therapist to kind of shed that feeling of I'm doing it wrong was really helpful. Yeah, I felt the same way. I was doing a therapy with a somatics therapist for over two years and I kept thinking, well, I'm not getting anything out of this. It's not working. It's not working. And I put a lot of Mm -hmm. pressure on myself during the sessions to make something happen. And what I'm finding now is that having done all that work, it slowly built up a resistance in my system to the triggers around trauma and the feelings I was having around trauma. But I didn't really realize it was happening as it was happening. I feel the exact same way about EMDR. I was like, maybe this isn't for me. And I started skipping sessions because I felt like it wasn't working. And then I encountered a trigger in real life and my response was way less intense. And I was like, oh, maybe it is working. And I told my therapist (laughs) about that. She was like, yeah, dude, you've done tons of work around this. It's not just for naught. I'm glad you had the same experience. Congratulations. That's awesome. Oh, thanks. It's a work in progress. (laughs) Yeah. As you know, it does sound like a lot of hard work, though. It's difficult. I'd say that it's become more difficult in the recent years since we've done so much work around it and a lot of the scab is pulled away and it's very raw like working on those memories I didn't used to be really avoidant around mental health stuff but I had a big 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 traumatic moment in 2020 and ever since then I've been very avoidant around that stuff and overcoming that in a therapy that's already really difficult is really hard but to people listening I want them to know that it's very much worth it You mentioned being in a situation where you felt really triggered and you felt like you'd done a better job of dealing with it. So you're finding that it's quite effective in that sense? Are you seeing those kinds of improvements here and there or is it just coming up when it comes up? 100%. I feel like it's better. I used to have a really, this might seem silly, but I used to have a really intense trauma response around Instagram, just the app, you know, how PTSD manifests in interesting ways. And I don't see any of that anymore. It just is something that I've completely worked through, which is really incredible. My reactiveness has toned down extensively. Since 2018, I immediately used to act on things and act on emotion just out of pure fear from that traumatic event. Yeah, And I've noticed that I'm able to take a moment to breathe and to think, which has proved so so important for like myself and my relationships and my work and just everything about that is really important. And I also prepared in EMDR. This isn't necessarily something you have to do in EMDR, but I prepared with my therapist 
about what exactly would happen if I were to encounter specific triggers mm-hmm. when I do all that work comes back into play, which is really that kind of stuff. All that preparation can just fly out the window. If you see a certain person or hear a certain thing or smell something, I'm really sensitive to smells around trauma for some reason, but her and I worked really hard on like, if you see this, here's one, two, three, like what we're going to do, we're going to step away. Like we're going to tap a little bit. We can talk to our friends. And then in that moment, how are we going to recover and not do something that that's been really, really important. I had the same thing with specific triggers and I'm realizing now actually just what you just said about coming into contact with them and how certain things you don't really realize that they're traumatic at the time. And I'm thinking now that my major health crisis when I was diagnosed bipolar in 2018 was traumatic in itself. Mm. And all these triggers came up, like you said, around social media or just weird little things like I'm sober. So anybody that was drinking triggered me and I was a mess. I was a complete triggered, (laughs) triggered mess. Triggered constantly. Yeah. And it got to the point where I was able to get over some of those triggers and but they're never truly gone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The important thing is just, even though they're never gone, all we can change is how we react to them. Yeah. The world isn't going to change, but we can. And I think that that's really important to remember for myself. And just remembering that my friends might, my immediate circle might, but the world will never cater to me. Yeah. The entire world isn't going to stop smoking cigarettes Yeah. so that I don't ever have to smell them. So I just have to remember, like, it's all about how I handle this moment. And also, like, rewarding myself when I'm able to get through those with little to no damage or, or fear or, like, you know, not having a panic attack, I think is is really important, just celebrating those moments. With Destroy Boys, when you're playing music in the band and singing and screaming and writing songs, how does that affect things that trigger you? And Is that a calming effect for you? Is there things that triggered you with being in the band? Yeah. Singing about things that are pretty triggering can be hard. I'm really focused on our live performance, so I kind of disassociate myself from the content of the songs and focus more on what we're doing. I also, I have a rule with myself with Destroy Boys where I kind of let myself think whatever I want. I don't redirect my thinking the way that I normally healthily would in a situation where I'm just walking around having dinner, you know? If I have what I like to call like younger thoughts, like something teenage me would think or pre-therapy me would think, I just let it play out and see how that affects my life. It often makes me play a lot better (laughs) because those raw emotions, I think a lot of like, I hate him, I hate him. And that comes out with me hitting my guitar a little bit harder. And I also think it's important to just let people are always talking about feeling your feelings. I'm really poorly skilled with that. So doing that during destroy shows, I think is really important. A lot of people I talk to talk about dissociating on stage when they're playing music, Yeah, going to a different place and the brain can click out of that really scared place into this, what they call a flow zone. And it's mm. always so cool to watch bands do that. That's something that we really pride ourselves on is being able to click into that moment. You mentioned the inner teenager, going back to the teenager of yourself and also pre-therapy. And I'm assuming that goes with the inner child work that a lot of folks do Mm -hmm. directly related to the MDR. Or is it a separate therapy you've done? It's something that I started working on when I was doing hypnotherapy. But 
I think a lot of people do inner child work, which is incredible, but I actually had a very cool childhood. <laughs> of course there were things, but I focus more on my inner teenager and I had a moment in hypnotherapy where I wrote a letter to my teenage self and pictured me handing it to her. And it was really, really emotional for me because I was very miserable as a teen. I think most of us were. I was like deeply, deeply unhappy. And all that really got me through was the idea of playing music for the rest of my life and being able to mentally kind of deliver that confirmation that all that paid off was heavily emotional for me. But I find that I judge my inner teenager a lot. And I don't think that's fair. Something my therapist pointed out. She was working with the best that she had. And in turn, that judgment that would fall on my inner self doesn't fall on my current self anymore, which is really healing and sweet. It's also very sad, but it's sweet. When you were having struggles when you were a teenager and looking back on that person now and thinking it was messy in a lot of ways. When you started writing music, did that stuff come out in your songs? Or was it one of the impetus of starting to write music? Oh, yeah. We have a song called Word Salad where I was talking about that intense symptomaticness that comes with being mentally ill and just about how I felt like I wasn't ready to die, but that was like my only solution. And I didn't know how I was ever going to get better. And then one time, <laughs> one time on Instagram, someone accused me of appropriating mental health terms by calling the song word salad. And I was like, that's definitely a symptom I experience when I'm exhibiting psychosis. And that's crazy that you would just assume that I don't have anything. And she was like, oh, sorry. No one knows what I'm experiencing. I'm not public about any of this because that's how I find peace in this. How would you describe word salad? When I was younger, it just used to be like true gibberish. Being able to say certain words and like falling off making sense in certain places. It might look different for certain people, but I don't experience it anymore now, which is great. That's the result of a long work. It, it, but as trauma morphs, it's like instead of gibberish, I will not be able to speak. That's something that started coming up when I started experiencing that time with my ex in 2018 is sometimes if you get yelled at a lot, you just stop talking, you know? <laughs> Were you experiencing psychotic episodes then through your teens or even your adulthood? So what's interesting is that I don't really know what was going on in my teenage years because I didn't have the resources to tell me what was going on. I think that that is what was happening. You know, I'm not a doctor, but a lot of the things were there. I mostly experienced just a lot of disassociation and really intense, intense, intense emotions and acting out. I really wanted attention when I was a teenager. And that's something that has become a lot easier for me to admit because it used to be my biggest insecurity. But my therapist reassured me. She's like, you know, every teenager whose parents worked a lot really wanted attention, you know? <laughs> and that's not shade on my parents. I love them. They were really, really good to me. Still are. Love them so much. But they had jobs and jobs require you to travel or work a lot. And sometimes when you go to high school, you cut all your hair off and try to make everybody look at you all the time. <laughs> <laughs> True punk. Yeah. Yeah. 
Do you remember when you first discovered punk rock? Well, I actually grew up around like rock, kind of 80s, more metal and like straight up rock and roll. And I wasn't really into it. <laughs> and then I heard Green Day when I was 12 and I was like, oh my gosh. That's what I want to do. And then I kind of delved more into the East Bay, like Gilman Street scene, like Crimshrine and 15 and Rancid. And then I just branched out to more U.S. punk, obviously British bands from the 70s. And it just spiraled from there. I was like, oh, this is exactly what I'm going to do. What was it about it that you knew is for you? I mean, this is perfect to talk about on the podcast. It's like, I felt as if, Something I would say a lot when I was growing up is that I felt like when I listened to Green Day or those adjacent bands, it was almost purging that pain from my soul. Like it felt like it was literally almost like squeezing as it, as gross as that is. Like it, <laughs> it just felt like it was just temporary giving me like this release as if this like huge weight was lifted off my shoulders for two minutes and 30 seconds. And then it was returned till I hit next song. And I wanted to find a way to recreate that constantly. Now I know that that is, for me, medication. <laughs> <laughs> but I also learned to play guitar so that I could physically expel all those feelings, which was incredibly healing for me. And I also put those feelings into all the records we made. And I hear a lot of our fans very so kindly saying like, oh, you know, it, this relieves me. It's like you guys understand what I'm going through. And that's really nice to hear because I was once a kid listening to that band for me. So being that band for someone else that's a teenager is really healing. I've never heard the popping is it reference before, <laughs> but it's pretty damn good. Thank you. <laughs> total I, sense. I used to envision it in my mind as almost like slime leaking out of my pores, yeah. but that's like <laughs> almost grosser i don't need i can't even decide which one's grosser but that's more on the death metal side yeah <laughs> <laughs> and are you still doing the same types of therapy with your therapist now or if you moved on to some other styles i do emdr and, and talk still the same person and i'd say maintenance with medication has been the biggest change for me that has really really helped me it's really different for everybody you know i don't want anyone especially people under 18 listening to this and feeling like medication is the solution. Some people, it works. Some people really need it. Some people, it can make things worse. So specifically for me, I've found a lot of blessing in my little pill bottles. Self-advocacy as well. Don't just do it because you feel like you have to do it, but make sure you're part of that process and that decision. Yeah, you said it. I wish that there was a better system in place so that we didn't have to throw it at the wall and see what sticks for medication because it has a real effect, you know? I wish that I had known that there was a better combination out there for me about my specific symptoms, but I find that a lot of psychiatrists are, are almost like resentful of you before they even meet you. That's something I hear a lot from people who I talk to about this kind of stuff is that psychiatrists are really interesting, but I just found a good one and she actually listened to me and heard me out and she 
put me on my current cocktail and it's been great ever since. Yeah, I've got an amazing one as well. So I guess we're two of the lucky ones. Super lucky. The worst part about anxiety is that it never goes away. Not even for a second. There's never like that fun little movie cinema moment where you're like, I'm cured. It's better. No! It just never goes away. Like, you could be going around a corner, the person waiting around the corner could be two sixth graders or your idol, and you would be just as afraid. No matter what. I think I'm gonna be okay eventually. Just not for a minute. Like, not for a minute. That was my conversation with Violet Mayuba of Destroy Boys. Destroy DestroyBoys.com. For more episodes of Screen Therapy, go to ScreenTherapyHQ.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Big news the Screen Therapy book is available now. Screen Therapy, a punk journey through mental health, tells my story and the stories of others who use punk as a catalyst for mental health. Like this podcast, it links the community-minded punk scene with the mental wellness of the punks who belong to it. To order the book, go to ScreenTherapyHQ.com. For merch, check out the newly opened store at ScreenTherapyHQ.com store. And for even more designs, check out Screen Therapy on TeePublic. Okay, enough promoting. It's time for some thanking. Thank you for listening to Screen Therapy. Doing this podcast and talking to folks about punk rock and mental health has been a crucial part of my own mental stability, and it means so much to me that you're out there listening. Screen Therapy is created in the Cathet region of coastal British Columbia, Canada, on the traditional territory of the Klohomin Nation. Contact me at ScreenTherapyHQ.com or email me at ScreenTherapyPodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Let's talk about punk rock and mental health. Until next time, take care and be well.